Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Jim Lee here with me today, and you can find a lot of information regarding Jim, and he does give uh, something away for free. So head over to jlmrealestateinc.com slash free product, free dash product. And I'll make sure to have that link as a clickable link in the show notes. So head over to that. But really appreciate your time here, Jason. Yeah, um, no worries. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate you having me on your show. So Jim, so everybody knows, is is a real estate broker, and he's got a lot of multifamily real estate investing experience and helping high-income earners find those proper and running the numbers and finding those proper investments. So we're going to pick his brain a little bit today regarding this, but I first have to, you're a fairly young guy, I'd, I'd like to have a good idea as to how you found this path and how did you get into real estate? Yeah, so... um I got into real estate when I was 20 years old. I was kind of in college at San Diego State searching for what I wanted to do and kind of fell into it through networking and joining um, all different kinds of groups on campus. And um, I met my old mentor uh, named Brian, and he kind of hired me on to his commercial real estate firm down here in San Diego, um, a small multifamily firm um, with about 20 agents. But uh, him and his partner were amazing mentors. They taught me the business really fast. And uh, got my license beginning of uh, my senior year of college, so my last year of college, and um, did four or five deals before graduating. So I kind of had that nest egg to fall back on since, you know, brokerage is an all commission, no salary job. Um, and then from there, um, you know, after COVID and 2021, my business exploded. Uh, in the last three years, we've done about 200 million um, in sales for about 120 transactions. So um, kind of had that big growth when a lot of people were kind of complacent and seeing what was going to happen during COVID. And then I was kind of in the office every day, just grinding and trying to make things happen and paid off. So that's how I got into real estate. Yeah. You know, it seems like it it could be just because of my backyard too, that a lot of the realtors that get into multifamily and becoming a a broker at, at your level, there's usually a progress or a progression there. They start off with the single family homes and they kind of move their way into the commercial properties. Is that how you did it or did you jump right into commercial? Um, yeah. So I haven't actually, I've probably sold one single family house in my entire career for a friend and um, I jumped right into commercial. So um, commercial for residential properties considered five units on one lot or above. Um, so yeah, I jumped kind of right into the fourplexes up into, you know, 20 units kind of my first year and then, um, kind of stuck that route. Um, so yeah, there was no progression for me starting in residential and moving up to multifamily. And as you've been progressing here, do you do any investing yourself or is it mostly the brokerage? I do. Yeah. I started investing, um, beginning of 2021 and, um, I have all in San Diego. We have about 14 properties down here in San Diego. Okay. San Diego is kind of a tough market. How have you found it? Um, yeah, I mean, I think all class, you know, I think all big cities are tough markets. But um, yeah, California is definitely tougher than most markets. But um, 
I think when you're a broker or an agent in a city and you really know every street very well, I think you have an unfair competitive advantage. So um, I think having that knowledge and knowing values extremely well um, in each submarket kind of helped me figure out what was a good deal, what was a bad deal, what was a good opportunity, what wasn't. So I think having that knowledge and learning as an agent and a broker kind of helped me um, kind of blossom into an investor that's kind of understands exactly what's going on. Is there any lessons that you've learned along the way that you would have known when you started off? It's a great question. Um, I think in the biggest lesson or lessons I learned um, in the real estate business is to be patient. I mean, I think a lot of people in the past have tried to grow extremely fast and um, have kind of overstretched on deals, maybe gotten too much leverage and kind of lost their lost their butt. So um, I think the best piece of advice I learned was, you know, grow, you know, steadily, but d- don't grow too fast where you're going to over leverage yourself. And, um, you know, you might have one mistake on a deal and think to go south from there. But uh, that was probably the biggest advice I got. And um, I, I think the second biggest lesson is, you know, buying properties for below market value. I think when you're buying a property that you can, you know, put a lot of money into and has a lot of upside to increase the rents, increase the values and um, kind of take your own destiny and do what you need the property to make it go up in value. Um, that has really grown my portfolio really fast. So um, I think having that investment strategy, but also being very conservative has helped us grow steadily in the last uh, two and a half years. You mentioned uh, the importance of your mentors in your brokerage in your you know uh, career. Have you found a similar situation in your real estate investing? Do you have the same mentors or a different set of mentors uh, for your real estate investing? Um, I'd say for my real estate investing, I think I just asked a lot of questions to my clients when I was um, just being an agent for them, finding them properties, and got acquainted with a lot of people that I work with. So. I think just hearing advice from hundreds of investors that I've worked with has been kind of my mentorship. I don't have like one person that I fall back to and I'm looking at properties. Um, my mentors at my old company, um, I left and started my own brokerage about a year and a half ago. Sorry, about a year ago. So um, I don't really talk to them much anymore, but um, I do have a partner that I own most of my properties with and he has um, 10 years or more experience than me. Um, so that... So being a partner with him has helped a lot in kind of understanding how to handle the operations, asset management, and all the all the good stuff when it comes to investing. Yeah, you're kind of in a unique position because you kind of have a front row seat as these investors are running the numbers and reviewing properties. Are there some of those lessons along the way that kind of surprised you? That's a great question. I think I think from from seeing everything and being on the front lines, I think what surprised me is kind of how um, a lot of investors have a very narrow mindset of investing. Like, for example, a lot of people will only look in like one zip code, will only buy a certain year built. Um, a lot of people will buy only like a certain amount of bedrooms per property. So like some people will only buy a property with two bedroom, one bath units in it. Um, if there's one, one bedroom, they'll like, they'll pass on it. So um I think it's kind of surprised me how a lot of investors have a very strict criteria. Um, but I think the best investors that I work with have a very open mindset to where whatever the property looks like, whatever um, location it is, if the numbers make sense and there's room to make money, um, they'll go after it. 
So I think the people who are more more creative and kind of have more of an open-minded um, strategy to investing have done the best that I've worked with. Why do you think some of those inv- individuals have such a strict underwriting criteria? I think they have very strict criteria because um, number one, a lot of them are, are mom and pop, small, um, you know, private investor. To be honest, a lot of them kind of have that mindset and criteria just from like generations of of family. So like their parents might have only looked for um, a certain amount of properties in this location or by the beach or they won't go anywhere else besides you know two miles from the ocean so um a lot of it has been just through like generational wealth and kind of what their family has invested in the past and what their criteria has always been and then some people just don't want to own property too far from where they live so a lot of people care about the location um they don't want to be like a more than like a 15 to 20 minute drive from their property so um location and just um overall investment criteria as a family history has been a big um big rebuttal on why when i ask why would not you look here here or somewhere else you know i've heard multiple times that when it gets to multifamily investing that's where things can really get creative what are some of the most creative purchasing events you've seen that uh, was able to be negotiated with the actual property or like in the negotiation between a buyer and seller well both i mean like uh you know it seems like you know there's been a couple times, for example, where we've bought a multifamily property, and it was like the only time where uh, the seller was willing to do some carrybacks and a few other things to to make the deal happen, where you wouldn't mm-hmm. typically find that type of thing in a single family home. Yeah, no, that's a great topic. Um, yeah, so I've been a part of a few seller carrybacks, seller financing deals where. Um, the sellers owned the property for over 30 years and, you know, had no mortgage on the property. And um, when we made an offer on the property, we could put about 15% down and the seller carried back rest of the loan at about 5% interest only for five years. So that's a great way to get into pro- to multifamily property. Um, if you're dealing with an old seller who's owned the property for a very long time, and has no mortgage on it. So that's definitely one event. Also in multifamily um, or commercial in general, but um, there's a lot of loans that are assumable. So for example, if you bought a property and you had a $2 million loan with Chase Bank and it was a multifamily loan, so let's say it was a 10-unit apartment building and it was a $2 million loan, um, if you were still within um, the fixed loan term period, a, a buyer can uh, come in and take over the loan and um, it'll waive the fees that the seller will have for prepaying the loan early because with commercial loans, there's a prepayment penalty of anywhere from one to 5% of the loan amount. So um, I've structured those many times. And um, in regards to the property itself, um, what's really been a creative way to, to add value and, and make you know good money with your multifamily property in San Diego has been the ADU laws or the accessory dwelling unit laws here in California, but especially San Diego. The city of San Diego is extremely bullish and very lenient on these laws. Um, like for example, we converted, um, two garages on a duplex lot and turned it into a fourplex by making one garage into a two bedroom, one bath unit and making the back garage into a one bedroom, one bath. And, um, that built over almost $600,000 of equity and the, and the capital expense into it was about 150,000. That's been a really creative way on how investors have been making money in this market in San Diego. Sure. 
Can you kind of give us an example? Like in San Diego, like I mentioned, it's kind of a, a kind of a tough market because of the of the high cost of real estate. But you you've mentioned a couple times now of adding value. What are some of the value adds that you've seen some of your investor friends doing in that market to make it worthwhile? Yeah, I mean, I'll just um, mention my own. So I I mean, so for example, our main strategy is to kind of help the tenants move out um, that are paying a really low rent. So for example, we bought a fourplex in South San Diego and um, the tenants are paying about 50% below market value. And our property managers helped them find a different unit for cheaper in a different location because we told them that we were doing um, significant renovation to the units and the property. Mm-hmm. Um, so after that, that took about two months. And then from there, we spent about 175000 remodeling the four units in the exterior. Um, we bought that property for a million dollars in probate. And then from there, we sold the property for a little under $2 million to a VA buyer. And then we took those proceeds and did a 1031 exchange into um, a 16-unit building in uh, San Diego State area. Because we sold two fourplexes, which is eight units, and we bought 16. Our investment strategy and how we've added value and grown our portfolio very quickly is buying properties cheaper that are you know fixed up. I mean, that need to be fixed up, that have a lot of work needed. We'll build a lot of equity, sell it, and then we'll do a 1031 exchange, which is a basically a tax-deferred event where you sell a property. And if you buy a like-kind property and for a greater price and you take on the same amount of debt or more, instead of paying capital gains taxes, they're deferred. And you can take all your proceeds and put into a bigger property. So that's kind of what we've done. And that's what I've done for a lot of clients as a broker. So that's worked really well for um, our investments. Right. Is that how you've been scaling so quickly is essentially adding that value and then doing the 1031 exchange and just keep growing into a bigger property each time. Correct. Yeah. So um, you build a lot of equity in, into, let's say, a fourplex that you buy, and um, you have a lot of equity that you've built. You want to capture that equity and sell it for maximum value, and then you want to buy a bigger property to scale faster. And when you buy that bigger property, um, if you bought it as like the same criteria as your the property you sold, you can do the same process again. So you're kind of repeating and rinsing over and over again. So just to remind everybody, head over to jlmrealestateinc.com slash free product uh, and take advantage of what Jason is offering there. Um, so uh, Jason, I wanted to revisit something you just said just a minute ago, which I, I think is very interesting. And I don't think it comes, <laughs> frankly, it seems like one of the most obvious things to do but a lot of people don't think of doing it is that you help people move out. Most people are so like stuck on keeping the existing tenants that that's like a blind spot for us. In fact, that would be a blind spot for me in, in many ways, but what a great strategy. If the, if the market is under rented, instead of raising the rents on those existing people, telling them what's going to be transparent, telling them what's going to happen. If they want to stay there, the rents are going to go up drastically or simply help them move. I, I guess I, it, it doesn't occur to a lot of people. What what made you think of that? Or is that just part of your partner partner's experience? Yeah. So um, in California, I mean, in California, we have something that's called AB 1482. And it's a rent control law where you can only raise rents 5% plus CPI per year. Um, so we kind of have a gridlocked amount that we can raise per year. Like unlike Texas, we can't just go in and buy... Um, 
you know, a, a multifamily property that's running for a thousand dollars a month and just boosting up to two thousand the next day. Um, so that's why we kind of have to um, do what we do, or else like the plan won't work. We'll be raising rents for five years to, to get it to market, which drastically affects the return or IRR. So to answer your question, uh, the reason why we do it is because um, just for return purposes, but we also do it in a way that is much more empathetic to the tenant. Like a lot of people will just post a notice for 60 days and expect them to move out. And a lot of tenants will dig their heels in and fight when that happens. But when you actually um, talk one-on-one with the tenant, you visit them, you tell them what's going on and you're very transparent and you want to offer them help such as moving costs, hiring a moving truck, um, you know, helping them find a new place on Zillow, apartments.com, like actively helping them move. Um, cause people are lazy and, and people don't want to move out of their home. So if you actually are compassionate and you, and you want to help them move out, then they'll be much more receptive to your, uh, your business plan that you need to execute, which is essentially moving them and renovating it and re-renting at a much higher rent. And I would imagine that in the end, it, it, I don't know if it's the same amount of cost or if it's actually cheaper, but in the end, you're, you're probably going to be spending that time, money, resources, whether they dig in their heels or you help them move. So it's, it's the, it's the better of the two choices. I, I see it as. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, um, if a tenant digs their heels in for an extra one to two months, they're fighting you on moving out that, that increases your carrying costs. Um, so you're paying your, your loan, your interest, your taxes each month, that tenant stays in the unit. So, um, speed is the name of the game. And in order to have speed, you got to be a compassionate person that, um, helps them move and you got to have a really good contractor to um, renovate the unit quickly and have a good property manager that kind of oversees everything. So got to have so a good that, team around you. Seth, uh, those laws in San Diego regarding the rent increases, that only is applicable if the person is, if there's a, a resident in there, is that the case? Or do you have to do anything else to the unit to justify the increase? No. So once the tenant, um, once the tenant is out of the unit, you can, no matter what happens, you can raise the rents to whatever you want. So you're not limited. You don't have to like do a certain amount of renovation or do a certain amount of increase. You can increase it to market, um, whether you do any work or not to the unit. Okay, sure. So if somebody is getting into real estate investing for the first time, um, how what would you suggest they do to get their feet wet? If they're trying to get into real estate for the first time, um, I would say don't try to figure out the business by yourself. I would say try to find some help around you, find someone in your network that might have some sort of experience that kind of knows what they're doing and, you know, pick their brain and ask what's going on and then do your homework, listen to great content like your podcast. And then eventually you got to just take action and um, chip away every single day. I mean, the first year in real estate, as you know, is extremely tough. It's the hardest year of your life, but um, just like building a business, the more you put time into it, the easier it gets and the more experienced you get. So, um, I would say those first couple of years, I mean, it's an absolute grind. You got to get through it. But, um, if you listen to the right people and you take the right action, you'll, there's no reason why you won't be successful. You know, one of the things that I find interesting with you, Jason, is that you, not only are you, uh, a real estate agent. Uh, that deals with multifamily properties and commercial properties. And I mentioned that in my market, that almost seems aspirational. People kind of progress their way there. But you also, as an investor, kind of jumped right into multifamily investing, which is also aspirational. 
Would you say that that's kind of a mindset thing that people need to break through, that maybe they should just consider jumping directly into multifamily investing? Oh, for sure. I, I think everything is in our heads. Um, I'm glad you said that because I think I meet a lot of people that um, kind of ask about multifamily and I can tell they have that mental block on like whether they think they don't know enough or think they're not good enough. I mean, I'm just an extremely average guy who worked my ass off and got to where I am. But um, I think if you can kind of remove that um, imposter syndrome mindset and you can get over the fear of you know, buying your first property or selling your first property, getting your license and going straight into commercial real estate. Um, anyone can do it. It's just all in their heads on, on why it's not possible. I mean, I know, I know a friend who, um, she got into multifamily and she raised a whole bunch of money and bought like 200 units in Texas for her first deal. So, um, you know, it's, it's all in your head. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when, uh, somebody is coming to you as a broker for the first time, they're looking at multifamily investing, especially in the San Diego market. I'm, I'm guessing that's where you do you, is that where you hold your, your license? Oh uh, yeah. California. Uh-huh. So, uh, where I'm getting here is the fact that uh, more times than not though, when I've dealt with some realtors, frankly, know very little about real estate invent investing <laughs> themselves. So what kind of experience do you typically try to provide, especially those newer investors when you're helping them look for a property? Do you kind of guide them and provide a little mentorship yourself? Oh, yeah, every single time. I think that's what kind of helps um, me stand out because there's a lot of agents out there in every market that sell the actual product type but don't own any of the product type they're selling. So there's a lot of multifamily or office, retail, industrial brokers out there that actually don't own the product themselves. So they can only advise on the sale. They can't advise on the actual management or the actual day-to-day um, -day activities that needs to happen for you to succeed as a real estate investor. So, yeah, I mean, I, I advise any, any, anywhere from um, the debt, which is helping them find the best financing and um, helping them find the best deal. And then also referring them to great property managers, contractors, helping them understand what it's going to be like, what the cost might be to renovate a unit. Um, what it's what the expenses will look like, such as the water, trash, sewer, electric bills, um, on average will look like on a whatever size building they're buying. So yeah, I mean, I, I can help from a multitude of ways. And um, I think that's why my clients have appreciated working with me in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, with all that being said, there's a lot of people that are listening to the show right now that are considering getting into multifamily and they're talking to different real estate realtors. Uh, what type of questions do you think they should be asking to make sure that the, the realtor knows what they're doing and is a good fit? Is it, I mean, it's a partnership. So um, there's a lot of first time or newer investors out there that will work with someone who sells single family homes. So a residential realtor who doesn't even specialize in the product type. But, you know, that realtor will understand that there's an opportunity and try to make a commission from um, that buyer who's looking for, let's say, a four unit or an eight unit in the area, I would highly caution working against someone who doesn't sell multifamily for a living. If they don't specialize in this asset type and they sell, you know, they do open houses, they sell um, single family homes. I mean, we don't even do open houses, right? Because it's all based on numbers. So it's just, it's a very different asset type. So I think the number one red flag you should look out for is if the agent you're working with doesn't sell multifamily for a living, then you should highly be highly um, aware of what could happen because they don't know 
much more than you know, probably because they don't sell the asset type. So mm-hmm. you want to work with an expert who knows exactly what bad things will happen and what good things can happen from a transaction. Um, I'd say um, number two is make sure you ask the agent or the broker um, if they've ever managed or owned this kind of product type themselves to see if they can help, um, you know, more if, you know, if you had questions about the actual management of the property, I think that's really important. And then I'd say number three is um, just make sure that the agent you're working with is selling a lot of the product type that you're looking for. So if you want to develop a relationship with a new agent or broker and um, they're either not selling that much or they're not selling the same product type that you're looking to buy. So let's say you're looking only in this location um, of San Diego, but you're only, you only want to buy in North County, San Diego, or let's say LA, um, you got to be very um, niched and understand what agent is doing the best for what exactly you're looking for in terms of price, size, and location. So those are okay. my three tips for that. Sure. Well, with, with all that, uh, again, I wanted to remind everybody uh, one last time, JLS free product. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. I wanted to call out one f- fact too, is Jason also has a podcast. It's called multifamily millionaire podcast. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes, but uh, I really wanted to call out your podcast and direct some new listeners over to your show. Cause I know that there's a lot of great information there as well. You know, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of running out of time here today, Jason, but one of the things that I've learned, especially when it comes to realtors and high performing real estate investors, they, there's t- typically processes and routines that they kind of stick to. Do you have anything in that regard? Are there like a routine that you stick to that you do every single day that, uh, has gotten to you where you are today? Yeah, um, I think the number one thing is I spend a minimum of four hours a day prospecting for new business. So um, from nine to noon and from at least five to six, five to seven, I'll be you know in the office prospecting for new business, whether it's texting, emailing, calling new um, property owners to see if they're looking to buy or sell or um, looking to make a move. So I think um, spending those hours every single day to look for new potential clients has been the number one thing that's kind of um, number one routine that's made my business kind of slowly move up. Yeah. I really need to call that out. You know, you said you do four hours a day. I mean, a lot of people, especially when it comes to real estate investor, it's one of those real estate investing myths that I, I keep trying to bust is the concept that this is an easy, easy process. And they don't, a lot of people don't see behind the scenes to know that to find that one opportunity or find that one investment, you're taking four hours a day to mine that information and and look for actively looking for the next thing. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, it's definitely a slow and steady process and you'll, you, you might go one to two weeks without finding a single good lead, but the week after that, you might get five good leads. So um, some weeks are better than others, but if you just keep chipping away and keep you know mining, keep looking for gold, you'll eventually find it. So right. um, it's just the process that you have to follow every single day in order to make progress. Well, if you don't mind, I have a few uh, rapid fire questions for you just to learn a little bit more about you, Jason. For sure. Well, first of all, I already talked about my one of my real estate investing myths I like to bust. What is one of yours? 
one of the real estate myths I like to bust, um, I think is you have to be a certain age to kind of get started in the business. I think a lot of people told me and I have a lot of friends that told them that, you know, you're too young to get into real estate. I think if you have the right mindset and you can get over that age gap, so whereas people say, I think uh, it's a big myth. You can be whatever age you want to start in real estate. Great. Uh, well, with that, what book would you recommend everybody checking out? And you're not allowed to say Rich Dad, Poor Dad. <laughs> I haven't even read that book. Um, <laughs> I would say Never Split the Difference by Chris Voss. It's a, an amazing, phenomenal book about negotiation and how to deal with people. And when you're in the real estate business, you're in the people business, not the real estate business. It goes people, then real estate. So um I would say definitely check out that book if you're looking to get into real estate. Yeah, I can't echo to that one enough. In fact, there's only a few, a handful of books that I also not only listen to the audio book, I have the Kindle version and I have a hard copy. You know, there's there's only a handful of books that I've gone to that extent. So and that's one of them. Um, what is the best piece of business advice you've ever received? The best piece of business advice I've ever received, I think would be that, um, have a learn, have a long-term mindset. I think we live in a world of instant gratification. I think delayed gratification is the key to seating in business, um, especially in real estate, because it takes a long time before all your hard work pays off. So, um, like I said, even if you have a month of no business and it seems like you're just calling for no reason and making no money, just know that you're working and chipping away towards something big. So I'd say, Having that delayed gratification where we live in a world of instant gratification is extremely important. Okay, great. Uh, what is one of your biggest business mistakes you've made and how did you recover from it? Biggest business mistake by far is hiring an unlicensed contractor. It was actually a referral for my client, so I really trusted in the contractor, but he didn't have his license. He didn't. He had the worst accounting, had nothing in writing. It was got a, a handshake agreement and it was the second property I ever bought. And it was a four unit. Three months goes by. He says he's doing work. I'm checking on the project. He's doing the minimum to make it seem like he's doing something. Um, he ends up pestering, pestering me for $80,000 and did about probably 10 or 15 grand worth of work saying he had to pay his guys early. Um, I didn't know anything about the contractor world. So I, I thought I was doing the right thing by paying him early, which is something you should never, ever do. Only pay someone after the job is done. And the guy went rogue on me. He went away, never heard from him again, called him, text him a million times. Don't know where he lives. And uh, yeah, it was just a bad situation. So that's the worst mistake I ever made. Okay. Wow. I, I That was in uh, once bitten, twice shy, I'm sure. You you kind of, uh, have, have you found that experience has soured you on other contractors or have you been able to get your mindset to back to where it needs to be? It didn't sour me. It just made me extremely cautious and made me um, learn extremely fast. I think I definitely went through the school of hard knocks on that one as hard as you could get. And I think um, getting hit in the face like that and taking that big of a loss just makes you extremely cautious on who to pick, um, how on top of people you have to be. And the knowledge of construction that I have now is unmatched from back then. So, right. If you could go back into time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would that be? I would say to him, don't be so scared of the world. Um, don't be scared of people that are 
that are a higher status than you. You know, they're just people. The world is shaped by people that, you know, are much smarter than you. So you can do whatever you want. I would say that, uh, yeah, I, I would say that a, a lot of my younger life, I lived scared and in fear. Once I finally stepped out of that mindset, the whole world changed for me. So I think if anyone listening to the show is in that state of mind, I would just say, um, that's my advice for you is just try to break out of that fear state. Well, uh, with one last question I have is, is there a question or concept you wished we would have covered here today? No, I, I really appreciate you having me on. You're a fantastic podcast host. would love to have you uh, on mine as well. Um, I guess the only thing I would say is um, if you want to get more free content or learn more about me, um, you could also check out my Instagram, which is Jason Joseph Lee. I post a lot of content on there for nothing in return. So um, if you want to keep up and stay in touch on the socials, let me know. I'll follow you back as well. Well, I appreciate that. I'll also make sure to have that link in the show notes. But Jason, really appreciate your time today. And uh, I hope you'll come back again sometime. This was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. I agree. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.